Let's hear God's word, Mark chapter 14, and beginning with verse 32. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death, stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Amen. We'll end our reading there in Mark 14, verse 42. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we look to you now to speak to us from your word, to enable us to enter at least a little ways into the depths of this tremendous passage, to understand that the sufferings of the Lord Jesus constitute his victory for us. And so, Lord, we pray that as you teach us to submit to your will, we would learn this lesson in the confidence of a triumphant Savior who will ultimately safely bring us to heavenly joy and glory, therein to praise God forever. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. If you had a slight feeling of deja vu as we read that passage, it may be that a few weeks ago, We read this passage, and I preached from it. I told you at the time that we would need to come back to it. On the previous occasion, we looked at the reality that there is communion with Christ for the believer in suffering, in prayer, and in submission to God's will. And so we particularly highlighted the words of Jesus there, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Now, as we return to this passage, we're still not getting all the way to the bottom of it. There's still a lot more that could be said. It'd be easy to have a whole sermon just from verse 38. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a lot of theology in the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, that it would be wonderful on some occasion to unpack. But not today. Today... Instead, we want to focus on Mark's goal in telling us this information about Jesus as part of his overall portrait of Christ. Now, you might remember that one of the ways Mark continues to communicate the truth about Jesus to us is by putting Jesus in contrast to other characters. You might have Jesus, in a sense, versus the demon possessed. You see Jesus in conflict with the demons and Jesus wins. 
Well, there's one way to make clear who is Jesus. He's stronger than the strong man. Or you might see Jesus in contrast to the Pharisees. Here are the Pharisees nitpicking, criticizing the disciples for minor matters. Well, who rises to defend them? Who speaks up for them? The Lord Jesus. There again, you see a contrast. Here are these false shepherds, these shepherds who are just out to maintain and extend their own empire through the application of extensive rules versus the Lord Jesus, who brings true spiritual freedom. Here in this passage, there is again a contrast, but this time it's between Jesus, not in enemies, but between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. He's watching and praying, as he tells his disciples to do. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. They're slumbering. They keep drifting off again. And he wakes them up, and they drift off again. Three times it happens, and at the end, it almost sounds like he's giving up. Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. He's not going to fight with them anymore. Now, of course, they're going to be wide awake in a few moments when the betrayer comes. But here, where their task was to watch and pray, they were asleep. Now, the Lord Jesus, during that time, was praying, and he was praying repeatedly. Well, that is an important part of the contrast. Jesus specifically said to them, watch. And that does mean stay awake. Keep awake and pray. And that is one of our neglected spiritual disciplines, along with fasting, perhaps, watching unto prayer, staying up late on purpose in order to pray. Or I suppose you could turn it around, getting up early on purpose in order to pray. Both of those are often very neglected by the church. We may see ourselves in this portrait of the disciples. Here's a spiritual crisis. Here's a temptation approaching. These disciples have been warned that they're in grave danger of denying Jesus. In fact, Peter has been told that he's going to deny Jesus three times. Is he praying against that? Is he seeking God's help not to fall into that sin? No, he's sleepy. And so he's sleeping. Well, isn't that a picture of the church? Crises approach, whether it's conflict within the church, whether it's personal matters, whether it's an illness that ruins our health and messes up our whole way of life and sends us into a tailspin into depression, whether it's something that sweeps over the whole society, a pandemic or a war or what have you. Crisis is coming. And are we watching? Are we praying? Or are we not very often like these disciples? We're sleeping. We're blind to the realities. We're indifferent. And then what happens? Well, the trial hits, the crisis comes, and we fail. We fall apart. We don't get it right. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. He told them that. He gave them the warning, and they didn't do it. What are these disciples? Well, these disciples are weak and helpless sinners who need a strong Savior. In other words, they are just like us. And who stays awake and prays? The Lord Jesus. The one who is going to bear all of the other burdens also bears the burden of keeping his own command. 
He tells them to watch and pray, but he's the one who carries it out. He tells his disciples to love one another. But in fact, who actually loves us? Who's actually consistent in loving us day by day? Well, it's the Lord Jesus. He tells us to honor God. Who's the one who leads us in worship? In the midst of the brethren, he sings praise to God's name, according to the book of Hebrews. You could go through with any of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the Two Great Commandments, the Golden Rule. Who actually winds up keeping those commandments? It's the Lord Jesus. We may have a small beginning of obedience to those commandments, but his obedience came first. His work on our behalf came first. In this contrast between the praying Savior and the sleeping disciples, One of the things that Mark is doing is he's showing us very clearly who is the Savior and who needs to be saved. Who is able to do these things? The Lord Jesus. Who needs the Lord Jesus to do those things for them? Everybody else, the disciples. That contrast should already help us to see because we ought to identify with the disciples. If we're honest with ourselves, we're told watch and pray and we take a nap. We need the Savior. And so who's facing this whole crisis alone, without human help? The Lord Jesus. We often feel like we're going through our crises alone, and it's not true. His promise stands, I am with you always. But when he was in this moment of tremendous crisis, when his soul was sorrowful, he even unto death, Could even Peter, could even James, could even John, the disciple whom he loved, could they stay awake for one hour? No. They dozed off. They drifted away. And he faced it alone. But he didn't pull back. He continued with the conflict. He persevered. That's the Savior we need. A Savior whose persistence can be counted on. A Savior who doesn't give up. A Savior who doesn't get discouraged even when he is all alone. If we didn't have a Savior like that, we would have no hope at all. And so in this portrait of Christ, we see the Savior that we need. Now, we can get into the details a little bit more as we come to the problem of omnipotence. Now, I don't want to address the whole of this. I mentioned it briefly last time we were in this passage. Verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And notice verse 35, prayed that if it were possible. Well, you put those two things together. If it's possible, all things are possible. You think you have your answer, right? It is possible for this cup to be taken away from Christ. And yet it isn't. The cup is not, in fact, taken away. If you want to get deeper into the theological conundrum here, there's a sermon by B.B. Warfield from this passage, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, called The Paradox of Omnipotence. I think it's freely available online, or I can certainly happily lend you the book where that sermon appears. I don't want to get into all of that today. Instead, I'd like to look at it from a standpoint of how this is experienced, how this comes up for us. 
You see, when your faith reaches the point where you know, where you could say with the Lord Jesus, all things are possible, then you have to face another reality. All things are possible for God, and yet God doesn't always choose to deliver. God doesn't always send relief, at least not right away. Many bad things continue to happen, and you have to come to terms with that. Some people will try to let God off the hook by saying, well, God can't do anything about it. Well, but that kind of runs completely the opposite of what Jesus just said. As those who take the words of Jesus seriously, we can't let God off the hook by saying, well, he'd like to help. He'd like to make things different, but he can't. We don't have that option if we take the words of Jesus seriously. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So then we have to come to terms with this reality. Therefore, God does not choose to intervene and to make everything easy and pleasant and rosy right this second. That's fact, right? Nobody thinks you're already in the new heavens and the new earth and everything is as good as it could possibly be. You all have trials. You all have aches and pains. You all have problems. So God has not chosen to put an end to scoliosis. God has not chosen to put an end to war. God has not chosen to put an end to sin and all the evils that sin brings with it. Not yet. We have a promise about that. With God, for whom all things are possible, there is a purpose not to do that yet. That is a hard thing, isn't it? That's a difficulty, a challenge to our faith. We wonder why. And we don't always know the answer. Or with the psalmist, we might cry out, how long, O Lord? And the answer is no one knows except God. We don't know how long it will be. When you're in the middle of your suffering, you think, well, what purpose does it serve? Why do I have a headache today? Why has my back gone out so I can barely stand just when I had a ton of things to do? That is a real challenge. But it's a challenge that the Lord Jesus also faced. Abba, Father, all things are possible. Take this cup away. And yet, not what I will. But as you will, the Lord Jesus submitted. He subordinated his will, his natural, instinctive, understandable preference not to drink the cup of God's wrath. He subordinated that will to his father. And he did so without losing sight that God was omnipotent. And he did so without calling into question the goodness of God. That's implied in two ways. It's implied in that he says, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he thinks the doing of his father's will is better, is more important than him having his own way. But also it's implied in the words he uses. When he says, Abba, that's the Aramaic for father. Some people have alleged that it means daddy. I don't think that's accurate. That has been debunked by philologists. It's respectful, it's affectionate, it's warm, yes. It's not casual, 
But what is involved in that? Abba, Father. Well, involved in that is a sense of who God is and what the Bible says about God as Father. Well, I've alluded to it already a couple of times from Psalm 103. As a father pities his children, as a father has compassion on them, as a father is gentle with them, So the Lord pities those who fear him. That's the quality of fatherhood that the Bible chooses to emphasize is that sparing, that tenderness towards children. When Jesus calls God Abba, he's not thinking of God as a harsh judge who's difficult to placate and impossible to please. He's looking on God as a loving a kind, a gentle father whose cup of wrath he's going to drink. Now that is legitimately kind of hard to put together, right? I'm not the only one who feels this difficulty. Here's Jesus calling on God as father, asking to be spared as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, and yet the cup of wrath comes. That's not easy. And in one way, I'm glad It's not easy because it's not easy when something similar happens in your experience or in my experience. When the trial we were afraid of hits, when an unforeseen disaster comes out of the blue and we're turned upside down, we wonder about this. Well, we have before us the example of the Lord Jesus. He did not say, God is helpless and can't do anything about it. He affirmed God's omnipotence. He affirmed God's goodness. And he submitted himself to God's will. What can we do when we're in the fire? What can we do when our trials are increasing and there seems to be no end in sight? Here it is. Abba. We can call upon God as our father. We can ask. We can pour out our desire for deliverance, for relief. And we can submit to God's will knowing that it is better than ours, even if we don't know how it's better. Even if we can't explain why it's better, we can submit in trust. You see, this problem of omnipotence, you know, atheists have been using this for a couple thousand years, Either God is all-powerful and not good because he doesn't fix the problem of evil, or God is good but not all-powerful because he doesn't fix the problem of evil. This is a standard atheist line of argument. The Bible's aware of that and simply does not admit that this is an argument against God at all. The Bible takes up a different ground altogether. Jesus is faced with the problem of evil. And he affirms God's omnipotence and he affirms God's goodness and he keeps going. Well, that's what we're called upon to do as well. Now, God's promises help. Knowing the end of the story helps. Knowing that God is working all things together for our good and his own glory, all of that helps. But when we're in the middle of the trial, sometimes we too feel like Jesus. My soul is sorrowful even to death. And so it's good for us that this is recorded here. It's good for us that when we're so distressed and confused, 
we can just follow the footprints of our Savior in persevering through these trials. But then there's something else that comes out of this passage. Of course, all of this has been happening together. He's wrestling with God in prayer. He's taking a break from prayer, coming back to check in on his disciples, finding them asleep, waking them up, and they go back to sleep again. So those two things are happening together, which, of course, doesn't make the trial for Jesus any easier because he's got no help. He's got no support. He's got no sympathy from his closest friends. Well, we sometimes also experience that, or at least we think that we're experiencing that when we go through trials. But notice now the end of this passage. In verse 41, where he says, the hour has come. It's time. He's going to go to the cross. From now on, in a sense, he's being carried around, but he's being carried around because he let himself be arrested, because he let himself be pushed here and pushed there, dragged before this kangaroo court or that unjust judge. The hour has come. He knows the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. And when he says, rise, let us be going, he's not saying, get up, hurry, let's get out of here before the betrayer finds me. He's saying, stand up, get ready, here they come. We need to face them. We need to encounter them. As you might recall from what happens later on, he protects his disciples. He has the mob, the armed mob, let them go. And only he is arrested. What has happened? Well, if you want to put it this way, by submitting to the Father's will in this point, Jesus is back in control. He's in charge again. He knows what is happening, and he's accepted it. He's going through with it. So what does that mean? It means that here you have the Son of Man already prevailing, already victorious. He conquered Satan in the temptation. He conquered the demons when he cast them out. He conquered the Pharisees when he answered them in argument and they couldn't think of anything else to say. The scribes as well, also the Sadducees. But now what does he conquer? He conquers fear. He conquers sorrow. He conquers all the negative emotion that a human being is capable of. He conquers weakness and he prevails. Why? Because his soul was exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. And yet he doesn't flinch. He doesn't rebel. He doesn't turn away. He perseveres. Notice again another contrast. It's not explicit in the passage, but you almost can't help thinking of it. Adam had one easy command, and he broke it. The Lord Jesus had a supremely difficult command, and he kept it. The struggle was the victory, not the whole of the victory. But the struggle was a very significant part of the victory. And the fact that Jesus prays, that he sweats, as it were, great drops of blood, and yet he continues, he carries on, he goes through with it. He stands up and faces his betrayer and goes with them. That is already victory. 
Now there's an application there for us. We too face fightings and fears. Paul says that about himself. Without we're fightings, within we're fears. Not one fear, but multiple fears. He overcame one fear and boom, there was another. And of course, you could expand the list. We have fear. We have anxiety. We have sorrow. We have distress of various kinds. We feel overwhelmed. And a lot of times we feel like we're failing. We're not doing a good job. We're not getting a handle on these things. Child of God, do you understand that the struggle is the victory? The fact that you're fighting means that you are, in fact, winning. You are prevailing. Surrender is defeat. Ceasing to fight is defeat. But if you find yourself struggling today with a temptation you struggled with yesterday, hey, you're struggling. That is victory. You're persevering. It's not the whole victory. A day comes when the struggle will be over. But for now, for this part of your life, for this season that God has you in, the struggle, the conflict is the victory. Are you facing doubts? Face them down. Persevere. Do the right thing anyway. Are you facing fears? Well, don't let them gain control. Resist their dominion. Are you overwhelmed? Take it to the Lord in prayer and put one foot in front of the other. That's not failing. We feel like it's failing because it's like, I knocked this fear on the head yesterday and yet here it is again. So that feels like failure to us, but it isn't. That's not failure. That is victory because you continue to fight against it. The Lord Jesus went three times. He says to the disciples, could you not pray for one hour? So I think we probably ought to draw the conclusion that these are hour-long prayers. Have you prayed about whatever it is you're facing for a whole hour together? Staying awake late on purpose in order to do it? Well, Jesus did that, and then he had to do it again. And then he had to do it again. If you're fighting, you're winning. But then the even bigger application. The Lord Jesus did prevail. He did come through it. Yes, his soul was sorrowful. He began to be troubled and deeply distressed. But when the betrayer came, when the accusers had him, when they were hitting him, when they were pressing a crown of thorns into his brow. Did it seem, when you read the accounts in the Gospels, does it seem like they're in charge? No, it doesn't. He's calm. He's settled. He has prevailed already. The self-possession before Pilate, before the Sanhedrin, not to speak until they charge him by God. The self-possession to hold his tongue with Pilate until he sees the opportunity to say what he wants to say. The distress, he's worked through it. He's moved on. Here again, we come back to where we were at the beginning. The disciples are asleep while Jesus prayed. They needed a strong savior. And afterwards, when he says, rise, my betrayer is at hand. You see him again. It's not the conspiracy against him that is in control. 
It is the Lord Jesus. How did he get there? He got there by submitting to his Father's will. How do we prevail? How do we come out ahead? Well, there's two answers to that, and they both need to work together. One is, well, the Lord Jesus already did it for us. We trust in him, and he carries us along. But he does carry us in a path of imitation. And so we, too, submit to our Father's will for us. A will we know is good because we know the outcome in the case of his beloved son, who defeated sin, death, and the devil, who rose again for our salvation. That is our strong Savior, and it's trusting in him that we can follow his footsteps. Amen.